Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. The show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desks. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at aspirus.co, A-S-P-I-R-U-S dot C-O, and linkshus.com, where you can sell your products everywhere. Hi, Samir again. Hi, Bernard. Glad to be back. I'm talking to Samir Singh, currently working with App Annie and also the owner of tech-dots.net. Let me make, yes. make sure that I always get it right. I think we went through the last episode talking about the big five events in Asia in 2015. For my audience, you'll be hearing this episode in 2016, probably the first day. So what are the predictions for 2016? Well, the first one, I think, is going to be a lot of consolidation in the O2O market, specifically for on-demand ride-sharing app. Right now, you've already got an unprecedented roaming agreement between Lyft, Grab Taxi, Ola, and Didi Dasha, where any of those uh, users of, let's say, a Didi Dasha can go to India and use the same app to ride a cab. But the back end, is they're going to tap into the Ola network because they're active in India. They're already working in a partnership that almost combines these companies. They're, they're very close to acquisition already. The bigger question is who eventually acquires one or more of these companies. And my prediction is either Uber or Didi work acquire Grab Taxi for Southeast Asia. My bet is on DD, but it all depends on which VC firm is going to fund the acquisition because the, the economics of all of these companies is pretty much the same. They're all broken. But they share a common investor now by the name of Tiger yes. Global, right? Yes. And yes, SoftBank owns three of them, if I'm not wrong. Ola, yeah. Didi, and Grab Taxi. The reason of this is because... That's because I think, A, unit economics are broken for each of these companies, which means because they're competing with Uber for the same users, the user stickiness is fairly low because pretty much their, their, their entire user acquisition strategy is based on subsidizing both drivers and, and riders. So they tend they've to attract users that are very, very price sensitive. And those users, by definition, have lower lifetime value. So what's going to happen is either they'll have to raise prices in order to fix their economics, which and the moment they do that, they start losing those users anyway. Or they have to fix it on the user acquisition end, which is try to consolidate as, as much as possible and minimize competition in that local market. Mm. And I remember you made this really good point in one of the episodes about the growth of Uber versus mm-hmm. its acquisition cost because I remember Fred Wilson had this formula about the growth and the operating cost. Yeah, the formula was the sum of your growth and operating margin should be about 40%. So you can either grow faster and make a loss or you slow your growth and make profit. And if our prediction failed, there will be two things that can happen. One is a down round for mm-hmm. either of these three guys. Yeah. Because you cannot over be oversubsidizing anyway. Yes. It's not just these companies. I think you uh, there are companies in India on, on the e-commerce space that are in danger of a down round as well. In addition, you have the O2O companies and you have other marketplace companies. So you by the way, we've already seen some consolidation. Meituan and Dianping just merged, I think, a few months ago in China. Mm-hmm. And that also shows just and they're in largely related businesses. But that still shows the scale of that unit economics problem. And it would be actually very interesting because that was exactly what happened to Didi and Kwaidi, which was the yep. earlier incarnation of Didi. Yeah. They were both killing each other and they decided that they just consolidated into one. So the, yeah. the, the local power has already consolidated. I think yeah. this is what Flipkart did with the acquisition of Mintra as well. Uh, but you still have Snapdeal 
existing there so that's pretty much one one big segment of competition and I, i'm at least right now i think both those companies are valued way too highly for to be consolidated so i think you're going to need down rounds plus consolidation to fix things there so the so actually our prediction although we talk about consolidation on the on demand cap hailing apps but we're actually talking overall in the region that there's yeah. going to be down rounds happening because there is first of all the reality dawns i mean yeah. it's already happening in the us and you're now having the unit cops and not unicorns anymore <laughs> and you have things like fidelity trying to giving ratings to all the startups unicorn mm-hmm. startups in different valuations so that is actually okay. happening at the same time and another thing that's going to happen i think is as reality starts dawning on this segment of the value chain your adjacent layers of the value chain become much more valuable so for for example in india focus would shift from e-commerce to supply chain and logistics because that's where the real value is one example i'd like to bring up is a company called shotang which Well, I I led a a seed round into that company last year. Now they've just raised a Series A. They're a B two B marketplace that connects unorganized retailers to distributors. These are players that weren't really very online savvy. Most of them have never used a PC before. Now they've got they've got a smartphone and they've got a way to order their inventory online as opposed to making physical orders on a piece of paper. That completely removes friction from the supply chain. And because they're focusing on a niche market, or, or a, maybe not a niche market, a focused market, it's a pretty large market. Because of that, the customer acquisition costs are likely to be much more reasonable than what e-commerce companies face today. To your point, and also looking at a lot of the logistics companies, and a lot of them are actually captives to the big e-commerce player. It looks like some of these yeah. companies are being spinned off by the e-commerce company to make their PNL look better. But yeah, I've actually beg- specifically yes, I actually starting to see one or two of them that actually getting less reliant on the captive and started to build up their market share. That's what Lipcard did. I think their logistics arm was called Etail Ventures. Not entirely sure, mm. but they did spin that off and. They are serving other e-commerce companies as well because that's where the value in that business is. Because e- e-commerce in India has become fairly crowded. And actually, I want to bring one other company to your interest is a company that has been off by First Cry, which is a little bit similar to Diapers dot com, where one okay. of the founders spin off this company called Express Bees. Yeah, they actually have a very interesting evolution in terms of the logistics play. So this would be something pretty interesting in terms of the supply chain logistics. Like, wow, it's close to my heart. So. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> no chance on that. On overall, that just to close it up, do you see a lot more down rounds happening not just in India and Southeast Asia, which we both talk about, even in China as well? I mean, given Absolutely. the equity bubble. Absolutely, I think I I think the situation in China is going to be particularly dire. Where there are issues in Silicon Valley, in India, I think there's just a handful of companies that could be affected because a lot of the funding volumes happening in earlier stages right now. But I think China in particular is going to be very badly affected. You know, I have been thinking about why there is no bubble burst in the last fifteen years. Ever since everybody started talking about this Web two point oh bubble, mm-hmm. is that every time people call for bubble, they actually hold back and then they start yeah. to correct themselves. So the, yeah. the bubble was never able to form. I don't know whether yeah. you're getting that feeling, but it seems to me that every time that happens from the US, it seems that there's always a market correction that comes in very very quickly. Well, that's true. The hope is that market corrections happen. Frequently enough so that uh, bubble burst becomes unnecessary, or it, it, you tend you can avoid it entirely. But at least right now in China, given the valuations of some of the largest O2O guys, I think we're past that point. Uh, in India, aside from maybe two or three companies, there there might still be the opportunity to, for a market correction and avoid a bubble. I guess that 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 will be something to watch out for in the coming year. But I think we will be looking at the data and see how many more interesting VC rounds are going on in the market. Which comes yep. to prediction two, because we talk about SoftBank. So SoftBank is in Asia Pacific, 
And I think mm. Pepper is going to be taking a B2B play. What kind of a B2B play? So one of the things that probably people don't know is that SoftBank has already launched in Singapore and mm. even in other parts of Asia Pacific, mainly mm. to take Pepper, but more to the business-to-business play rather than to the consumer play. So unlike in Japan, where a consumer can buy a Pepper robot and take it, and there's something very interesting about the hardware leasing model in SoftBank. And it is something what Apple is actually doing now with their smartphone in terms of the the way how people can finance their new iPhones is actually taken from the SoftBank model. Mm-hmm. You are seeing SoftBank approaching enterprises to find mm-hmm. enterprise users of Pepper. So they actually get Peppers to go into banks for as a customer service officer mm-hmm. or even banks in terms of logistics. Don't ask me why, but they're playing in this space now. And it was, it's interesting because I spoke to someone from SoftBank. I wanted to get a Pepper robot and they said, no, we're not having a consumer version for Singapore. I, I think there's a, there's a decent reason why. For one, consumers aren't very familiar with a humanoid robot. They've seen them in movies, but they've never actually used one. So making the consumer buy one at this stage is maybe a bit of a leap of faith. Uh-huh. Instead, if consumers experience dealing with those with those robots in a bank or in a, in a customer service kind of scenario, they might be more familiar with it and might, let's say maybe five years later it opens up the possibility of a larger consumer rollout. But if they can do it in Japan, surely they can do it anywhere else, right? I mean, in the more developed cities in Asia, for example, Singapore and maybe Taiwan and Seoul. But it's still going to be fairly localized. Right? At this point, Pepper is quite expensive that limits it to a very fairly small segment of the population second it limits it to the segment of the population that's also very comfortable with trying out new tech products so you're looking at very very early adopters there's a concept called crossing the chasm right in terms of diffusion of innovations and this is one of those products that's in danger of falling into the chasm if it's rolled out to consumers directly ah but this is interesting let me tell you this when i was in the ali cloud event in hangzhou china in october I saw mm. Pepper speaking Mandarin to me. Wow. So that's not true. I mean, the software that's behind Pepper's uh, AI is actually done by a French company mm. called LD Baron. So they mm. actually have a software layer that actually learns the different languages as well. Well, when you talk about crossing the chasm, we're not talking about product capabilities, right? Mm. The product could be very, very capable. It's just in terms of what customers are willing to pay and the immediate value they see from that particular product. You might have a small segment of users that adopts it and a larger segment of users that doesn't necessarily see the same value that others do. But if they interact with them for a longer period without buying that product, they interact with them in more scenarios, which is, like you said, in in a bank, for example, as an automated teller, not not an automated teller, a robotic teller, then people might start to see the value in those robots and it becomes much easier to market that product to them. Especially at a point when the, when the price drops as well. So what's the implication? The implication is Asia takes the lead on the hardware side and the West takes leads on the robotics and AI side? Well, you did mention that a French company was working on the AI of Pepper, right? Mm. That brings me back to what I said in the last episode, which is artificial intelligence is very, very data heavy. It's only companies that are very well versed with using data with companies like Google and, and you mentioned Baidu that are going to be important to this robotics revolution. At a, at a certain point right now, robotics is a fairly new area, but let's say five, 10 years down the line, manufacturing a robot is not going to be, is going to be viewed, let's say, as like manufacturing a smartphone. People view, it's a fairly complex process, but people have seen it. I mean, if there's a third player with Microsoft, yeah. right? 
as yeah, well. Microsoft. Okay. The data layer becomes, and the artificial intelligence layer becomes much, much more important. And you need to make sure that all your robots are connected. So that if one robot learns something, it adds to the artificial intelligence, let's say, cloud that connects all of these robots together. And they all learn it. I forgot to add one more company into play, which I thought that their software is actually also very good in artificial intelligence. And that's IBM's Watson. Uh-huh. So That's one of true. the things that people don't know this in Asia is that Watson is heavily implemented into kiosk machines for basically learning the users' patterns on what kind of services they use most in any like tellers, automated teller machines and all that. So mm-hmm. there is a play even for IBM as well into this robotic space. In in those kind of scenarios, the amount of data you, you're going to collect is going to be less valuable than some something, let's say, a Google or a Baidu is collecting. Right? Mm-hmm. And that, that to me is a, this is a bigger value. Artificial intelligence is the combination of a learning algorithm and data. A learning algorithm can be replicated. So that's why Google open source TensorFlow, right? That's, the, that's their machine learning algorithm. But it's really the data that brings the value in. Then there's very few companies that have access to that scale of data. They also now have the OpenAI Foundation as well. Yeah. They basically try to commoditize. But I, I always felt that the machine learning algorithms are commoditized. Mm-hmm. So they don't produce value. It's the data that they learn from that produces yep. the value. Absolutely. So that's why you don't see a lot of machine learning companies doing very well and become groundbreaking startups because you need to have the kind of firepower like Baidu and Google in order to do that. Yeah, and this is something I learned uh, in my time at Bitkimi. One of the companies we invested in was was basically a, was, was geared to be a machine learning startup. But the, the entire value they had was in the algorithm. And the algorithm is something that can be replicated. Your algorithm, your results are only as good as the data you have. And they didn't have any data. Moving forward, you will see only niches of machine learning, but on certain verticals, but you cannot, the, the main bulk of it is going to just be taken by Google and Baidu. And maybe to a certain extent, Microsoft and IBM. Yeah, I agree. And that comes to the next prediction. I mean, we talk about the third big event was Nintendo DNA deal. So what is the prediction you want to make? I think Nintendo DNA, going by what Mitomo was, is not going to be as a value creating as the hype surrounding it. Rather, I think the uh, Nintendo's deal with Niantic Labs is going to bear fruit. So Pokemon Go will be a success and that's going to spur Nintendo to think outside the box. And I think that winning strategy will be will not be drive console revenues by having an arm of IP in mobile games. Rather, the winning strategy will be move console IP over to mobile and enhance free gameplay by using real-world add-ons. So in Pokemon Go's case, it's the Pokemon Go Plus wearable that enhances enhances gameplay. And eventually, that could lead to competitive events as well. So real-world tie-ins for mobile gameplay. I think that's the winning strategy with their IP. You will see that Nintendo will become increasingly a content company rather than a console company. Yes. Do you think that that is also the reason why a lot of gaming companies are actually a one-hit wonder? Like for example, Zynga. Provio. Yeah, that's true. Because what they, what these companies basically do is they've got gaming is essentially a, a high-risk business, right? It's, it's very similar to, let's say, making movies. You've put money into a portfolio of titles and one of them succeeds in becoming very valuable IP and the rest of them just sort of wither away. For gaming companies, especially small ones, they don't have the resources required to invest in a portfolio of that scale. So rather what you have is an entire portfolio of gaming companies, each of which have one game and one or two of them become big successes and the rest just wither away. Nintendo has an advantage in that they already have winning IP and they just need to have a viable strategy to monetize that IP on mobile rather than trying to bring it back to their legacy console business. So isn't the winning formula for gaming companies is to be like Disney in acquiring more and more content? I mean, this is what Disney did with Marvel and with Lucasfilms for Star Wars, right? 
they oh, buy up the IP. So the actual winning formula is not in the game itself. So buying a new game that grows doesn't work, but buying the content to that game actually works. Well, it depends, right? So there's the slight difference in Disney's case is that A, they have got content in multiple areas. So they've got you know, movies, they've got TV shows, they've got TV channels, etc., etc. They've got they're, they're spread out in a lot of areas. But for Disney, the, the monetization model is fairly clear-cut. For Star Wars, for example, it's the biggest revenue generator this year. Let's put it out in theaters. That's the massive revenue. And they've got merchandise coming in. Those monetization models have already been established. There's nothing that Disney needs to do to innovate in those cases. All they do is acquire the content and let it fly. In mobile gaming right now, the only effective monetization model is pretty much in-app purchases. That's the only one that's been proven to be good. But there are a couple of companies, Rovio, for example, even though they have just one solid IP that have experimented with, you know, real-world times, even though those methods weren't as, let's say, as sophisticated, right? So they've got teleports, they've got Angry Birds toys, etc., etc. With Pokemon Go, I see something that's a little more mature, which is real-world products that actually enhance mobile gameplay, even though the game is free. I think that kind of real-world tie-in has much more potential going forward. So that will also extend into the AR and the VR world, as we also talked about in the last episode as well. Yeah, because Pokemon Go is entirely built as a VR game, much like Ingress was because of the company that's developing it, Niantic Labs. And because they're doing it on the smartphone, it gives them a sizable base to tap into, but it also gives them the option to target AR and VR devices should they become adopted by consumers. And I think that's something that's very important to look at. Prediction 4. Where is Xiaomi going? So in one of your episodes, someone brought up a strategy tax of Chinese companies going, going global, right? That they have to maintain two Android systems. Yeah. One is the China version of Android, devoid of Google. And one is global Android, that is Google's flavor of Android. That kind of makes their situation a bit difficult. Maintaining two separate ecosystems, two separate operating systems layers, and two separate upgrade chains is fairly difficult. That creates a bit of a problem in terms of resources. Especially for startups, even though Xiaomi is, I won't call it a, them a, strictly a startup anymore. The biggest prediction for me is their growth has slowed down because they haven't been able to move up market effectively because they haven't expanded overseas aggressively now. They have made some major patent purchases recently and I think they're going to put it to good use and they expand westward. That's my prediction for the year. And the person who gave the strategy text was Clay Shirkley who wrote the book, Little Rice. What you brought up about where Xiaomi is going in terms of the home tech also has broader implications to Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent because they are also growing global as internet services companies. So the strategy text also happens for them. I mean, for example, Alibaba has AliCloud. AliCloud is like the AWS in China. But when it goes mm -hmm. out of China, it has mm -hmm. to be similar to what AWS is providing as well. That's true. You brought up Tencent. Ten that's, a, that's an interesting example as well. So Tencent, with their mobile games, they're, they're very, very strong in China, obviously. Now they're trying to make a play for the West because they recently invested into Glue Mobile. But unfortunately, what they have to do now is because of the cultural differences between the West and the East, Glue has to modify Tencent's games entirely to make it make them more acceptable to the West. So it's almost like building a new game. Is paying strategy tax even for the gaming systems as well? It's for everyone. And where would they expand westward? Will they go to Europe or the US? I mean, in the US, it's going to be a big problem for them. They will just end up becoming locked in the situation like where Samsung went to. Europe is an easier target in some respects because carriers don't have as much power, let's say, in markets like Spain. Right? So those are lower hanging fruit. But in order to move up market, you also need to move to markets that are larger uh, or, or large enough. And the US is that large market. They've already expanded their e-commerce to order. I don't know how that's doing, but at least they've 
they've kind of introduced the brand to the US media, if not US consumers. I think they will need to move to the US. They do have one advantage in that a lot of their users tend to use a fair amount of data. There was one analysis that I did a long time ago, which was which showed that uh, Xiaomi users downloaded twice as many apps as the average iPhone and Android user. That gives them, and according to Lejun, at least, they also use twice the data. So that gives them one pitch to make to the carriers that, look, our phones are cheaper, so selling them is not going to be as much of an issue for you. But at the same time, they are going to give you as much data revenue as any of the other larger high-end phones. What you're trying to do is move your higher-end Samsung buyers to Xiaomi. And that comes to the last prediction, which is about Facebook, WhatsApp versus WeChat in Asia-Pacific. So what is the play? I think Facebook attempts to ape WeChat strategy but will not be as successful with it because of the cul- cultural factors and the, the lack of a web portal effect as I mentioned in the last episode. And they will make a play to acquire Line or make a play in China? I would put my bet on China because they might, even if they make a play to acquire Line, I'm not sure Line's strategy is scalable to the West anyway because, again, because of the same factors. All that would do is it would give them an into Line's core markets, which would be Taiwan and Japan. And I'm not sure that market is as valuable to them as China would be. So do you see Facebook doing anything to customize itself for the Asia Pacific for in terms of the messenger? Or are they just going to make themselves behave more like a WeChat line kind of app? I mean, if you look at what we, Facebook's messenger has been doing, they are look more like line than like WeChat. That's true. That brings me back to that question, right? So how much of a strategy tax is Facebook willing to accept? Will they be okay building a separate app entirely for China? or a separate version of that app entirely for China? Or are they hoping for, you know what, let's try and build an app that gives us, that is just barely acceptable to, let's say, US consumers, but is also acceptable enough to China where we can build a decent base in both countries. Yes, and of course, I forgot that if Facebook were to go into China, they need to accept that they need to build a data center in China. They have to build mm-hmm. all their services that... The- yep a backdoor for the Chinese government to log into. So Yeah, so the question they have to ask themselves is how valuable is China to them? Well, that's a billion population, right? Yeah. And it's also a question of, in terms of at least social networks in China, it's fairly, China is fairly crowded. Right? Domestic players are very, very strong. So you've got your QQs and WeChats on the messaging side. You've got Sina Weibo on the Twitter equivalent side. It's, so it's not like there isn't an alternative to Facebook. There, there are alternatives to Facebook. And they're just as good as Chinese consumers. They're just as good as a Facebook would be. So why wouldn't Facebook put more of its attention to India? That's another billion population. I mean, they are actually making a lot of inroads there, but also a lot of controversy with the internet dot all thing. But, You're from India, so you can tell me. Yeah. What do you think? But they are, I think they are focusing on India quite a bit. That's why they've got this whole plan of free basics, which is to provide free basic online services to pretty much everyone. The bigger question there is, what is a free basic service, right? So does Facebook want to give access to Google? That's right. one of those questions that that's led to that controversy in that this is anti-net neutrality. And at least as of now, I think the government's put a hold to that plan. I, I want to ask this question. Does the normal Indian customer think about net neutrality? No, absolutely not. <laughs> the media does. The media does, and the media absolutely creates a big hue and cry about it, but nobody cares. So eventually, you think free basics is just going to get implemented one way or another into India? This is more of a regulatory question than it is a consumer acceptance question, right? So the government needs to approve a plan that is heavily criticized by the media, which honestly is going to be fairly good for, the, let's say, the average consumer who needs to pay X amount for, for broadband access. But it really brings into question what is a basic service. So, okay, or what, WhatsApp is a basic service in India, all right? Is Facebook a basic service? What else is a basic service? 
And so if you are, so for example, when Facebook go, takes this plan to, uh, to the Indian government and it gets approved, what other companies can reach out to the Indian government and say, you know what, my sub, what, what I'm offering is a basic service as well. This needs to be free. Okay. What would that play look like then? That means you have everybody offering free basics. I mean, Google can offer its own <laughs> version of free basics. But, I mean, Google has already had Android inside India anyway, so they don't really need to worry about that from their perspective. Well, it depends. Right? So you've got a lot of Android handsets, but at the low end, maybe a lot of them aren't being used as smartphones. So I know Google has been trying to, at least a lot of Android OEMs have been trying to package up cheap broadband along with it. So maybe Google thinks it's not, it's not necessary. But, but maybe at some point Google says, you know what, Google Maps is a basic service that needs to be free as well. <laughs> okay. Okay. That's taking a little bit too far. <laughs> but I guess, I guess Facebook and Google's fight in Asia Pacific is slightly different from what they are facing in the US itself. Yeah, that's true. And because the nature of the market is, is very, very different. Right? The US is very, very, very mature. Google is a, is clearly a platform owner there. And Facebook is is the one that is the one, I wouldn't call, maybe call it a platform, but the one company that attracts the greatest share of consumer time. I thought I should just make one point. Across the whole of last year, which is in the last week of December, you have Mark Zuckerberg in India trying to sell free basics. Yep. You have... Sundar Pichai who went to India yeah. and then you have Sergey Brin who turned up in Indonesia about Project mm -hmm. Loon. So all three are the three largest markets in Asia and that means Asia is going to become an increasingly heavy battleground for everybody. Uh, absolutely. I, I think China is one of those markets that will be more difficult for them to play in but the rest of Asia, absolutely. India in particular because it's such a huge market just in terms of, uh, of population and smartphone penetration is still in like the 10 to 15 percent range and rising dramatically so you've got a lot of users who are coming online for the first time and the first company that gets access to, the, to those users and gives them a service that they actually need will will take the lead in capturing them right so it becomes very very important for them to reach out to these users i think that will be interesting to evaluate what happens when the next two billion gets online i mean benedict evans talked about it in his latest 16 mobile thesis but i guess there's a lot more in play as well so Samir, i think we came to this prediction so how my audience where do they find you i blog at tech-thoughts.net or you can find me on twitter at samir underscore sing 17 and you can find me at blcw or subscribe to us at analyze asia a-n-a-l-y-s-e-a-s-i-a -S -S -E find us on itunes stitcher soundcloud and acast and of course send me your feedback anytime anywhere and then we will respond to that so so samir once again thanks for coming on the show Glad to be here.